0: Chapter 22 Human Resource Development Section 22A Power Introduction The concept of power in the workforce has a negative connotation and brings to mind such associations as coercion, manipulation, and even corruption. This does not have to be the case. Power has many positive aspects and everyone can learn to explore and harness different sources of the individual power they have in the workplace— By developing their own sources of power, employees will be less dependent on others for the leadership they need and thus be better able to take initiative and make greater contributions in their jobs. Develop your own program called situational self-leadership and take a different perspective on power. Develop an understanding that the sole advantage of power is the ability to do more good. Thus, if you want to do more good for yourself and more good for the people around you, it's important to learn how to tap into your own points of power. Aspects of Power Position power is inherent in the authority of the position you have. You have position power when your business card has a title printed on it that indicates you have the power to manage people or command resources. My dad, an officer in the Navy, used to say, the best leaders are those who have position power and never have to use it. Task power is the power that stems from being good at a particular task at work and being able to help others with a process or procedure they may need to do. Personal power comes from your personal character attributes, such as strength of character, passion, inspiration, or a personal vision of the future. Personal power is further enhanced by the strength of your interpersonal skills, such as your ability to communicate well and to be persuasive with others. Relationship power comes from association with others through friendship, personal understanding of a colleague, and cultivation of a relationship, nepotism, or reciprocity, trading favors. Knowledge power is about having expertise in an area. This is often through knowing a special skill or group of skills in your job, but is also evidenced by having certain degrees or certifications indicating special training. Knowledge power can often be transferred from job to job or from organization to organization and is a general type of power. Charting your points of power. An enlightening activity is to list a number of workplace situations or conditions where you feel you have the power to influence outcomes or people. Next to each item, categorize the type of power you have in that circumstance. Now draw a five-pointed star with ten hash marks from the center to the tip of each point. From the center of the star, mark off the corresponding number of responses you listed in your assessment of each type of power. The farthest hash mark you indicate on each arm of the star becomes the new tip of that arm. Connect these new points. The resulting graphic should be some semblance of a star, with certain points having more emphasis and others having less. This will show you your primary points of power at a glance. If you want to be a real star in the workplace, Try to develop a strategy to balance the points of power where you work. Some examples. You have high knowledge power due to expertise in analysis and are often asked to analyze situations and report your findings in meetings. However, you're weak in personal power and your ability to communicate is poor. Your strategy might be to take a presentation skills course or to ask someone to critique a presentation before you give it to the group. You have high task power and need to present an idea to the head of your department, but are somewhat weak in relationship power. Your strategy could be to ask a coworker who has the ear of the department head to give you feedback on how he or she thinks the department head will react to your idea. You have task power and are working on a very visible project, but you lack position power, which might make it difficult to get support. Your strategy could be to use your task power to solicit a sponsor or champion who will help promote your project and your credibility. You have personal power but are weak in relationship power. Your strategy might be to use your social skills to network, ask others for instructions, attend meetings of professional organizations, or schedule lunches to help build relationships. Take advantage of the points of power where you're strong. Use your power in a positive way to do more good for yourself and those around you. If people throughout your organization are enabled to develop their sources of power, it could create a more even playing field for everyone. Power doesn't have to be concentrated in the hands of a few. Section 22b. Unit Morale. Contemporary Motivation. Contemporary motivation is a simple, three-phased approach to motivation. This approach states that people can be in one of three levels of commitment to the organization the membership level, at the lowest end, the performance level, or the involvement level, highest level. A person's level of commitment determines how motivated he or she is to accomplish the mission. The more committed a person is to the organization, the more involved he or she is in the organization. Supervisors can help to ensure the proper rewards are provided so individuals can move to or remain in a higher commitment level. Are methods available to measure unit morale or motivation levels? yes for instance the inspector general uses a climate assessment instrument to assess a unit's morale mark alexander author of the article organizational norms the 1977 annual handbook for group facilitators 1977 defines a set of organizational norms and maintains that identifying and evaluating organizational norms will result in a morale score he identified 10 norms categories but we will only examine 7 Paragraph 22.5 is an excerpt from the article on Norms Survey. Organizational norms. Within any organizational situation, behavioral forces influence individual effectiveness and job satisfaction. To a certain extent, these forces are a result of organization requirements that people behave and act in certain ways, that they hold certain values and sentiments, and that they interact with others in a particular manner. Required and Emergent Behavior An organization's required behavior, sentiments, and interactions are not necessarily in effect. Existent or emergent behaviors, sentiments, and interactions in many cases have a much greater influence on organization life than required behavior. Emergent behavior correspondingly affects productivity, individual satisfaction, and personal development. Behavioral scientists generally recognize that emergent organizational behavior is determined largely by formation of working group behavioral norms. Norms are desirable behaviors. They're considered acceptable behavior as prescribed by work groups and in the larger context by society and its institutions. There are numerous examples throughout work and everyday life of emergent behavior and the underlying norms that cause this behavior. In the work environment, a tendency to establish start and quit times that vary from company policy or a work group's inclination to establish a quicker or slower pace than required are two often cited examples. Outside the work situations, normative or emergent behavior also occurs and can be observed in schools, institutions, or anywhere that people come together and interact for a period of time. Positive or negative norms. From the organization's view, Norms can be positive or negative. Recent studies on organizational norms indicate that they can be broken into categories and that certain types or clusters of positive or negative norms can exist in a given work situation. Positive norms are those that support the organization's goals and objectives and foster behavior directed toward achieving those goals. Norms that support hard work, loyalty, quality, and concern for customer satisfaction are examples of positive norms. Negative norms have just the opposite effect. They promote behavior that works to prevent the organization from achieving its objectives. Negative norms are those that sanction criticism of the company, theft, absenteeism, and low levels of productivity. Norm Categories Organizational and Personal Pride Norms in this category are associated with an individual's feelings of identification and sense of pride regarding the organization. Positive norms lead the person to see the organization as his or hers. Negative norms are reflected in a we-and-they attitude toward the organization and its goals. Examples of positive and negative organizational and personal pride norms are evident in the competition between military organizations. If competition helps the units become better at their missions and exhibit greater morale and motivation, then competition is positive. On the other hand, if competition hampers the mission and leads to reduced morale and motivation, competition is negative. Teamwork and communication. These norms are reflected in the visible behaviors where individuals work together, cooperate. Negative norms foster individuality, secrecy, and the belief that success is achieved by an attitude of every man for himself. Positive norms promote sharing of information and working together to achieve common goals. Thomas Jefferson noted that a candle loses nothing when it lights another candle. That's the real nature of partnership and teamwork. Give freely of yourself and you'll be rewarded with abundance. Promoting a positive norm is even more critical as all military branches and government agencies work together to counter global threats and to combat terrorism at home and abroad. Leadership and Supervision Leadership norms can enhance or hinder effective supervision. Negative norms cause supervisors to assume more active roles, like constantly policing and monitoring airmen. Positive norms result in supervisors assuming the role of subordinate helpers, trainers, and developers. Profitability and Cost-Effectiveness This group of norms determines people's behavior with respect to profit and cost consciousness. Positive norms encourage people to save money and reduce costs. Negative norms foster a lack of concern for bottom-line performance. You may have heard someone say, It's good enough for government work. That's a negative norm that has been perpetuated over the years, but is one our Air Force cannot afford if we are to effectively accomplish our mission of defending the United States and protecting its interests through superior air and space power. Customer Relations Norms in this group result in individual behavior that affects the manner in which a customer is served. Positive norms are directed toward maximizing customer satisfaction. Negative norms lead to viewing the customer as an obstacle to be avoided. Air Force basic doctrine tells us the Air Force's Air and Space Corps competencies are recognized by our joint customers. In other words, the Total Force, Joint Force, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and others rely on us to do our job to the best of our ability. If we do not, we cannot fight and win our nation's wars as we're expected to. Therefore, Each organization must cultivate a culture that helps our airmen, soldiers, marines, and sailors develop a positive customer relations norm to ensure our nation can meet any challenge in the most effective manner. Innovativeness and Creativity This group of norms determines, to a large degree, whether original and creative behaviors are supported and encouraged. Positive norms lead to the stimulation of new ideas and to positive change. Negative norms support the status quo and discourage experimentation. In today's total and joint forces environment, we must encourage everyone to bring innovativeness and creativity to the table in order to meet the dynamic threats that terrorism has brought to our shores. Training and Development Positive norms in this group encourage training and view development as essential to the ongoing operation. Negative norms treat development as a non-essential, nice-to-do, but not critical, aspect of the operation. We saw firsthand during Hurricane Katrina that training is vitally important to the Department of Homeland Security, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the United States Army Corps of Engineers, and other natural disaster responders. In addition, airmen are constantly training with soldiers, sailors, and Marines to ensure each branch is better equipped and prepared to fight the global war on terrorism. Why we measure norms Understanding that norms exist, that they can be either positive, supportive of organizational goals, or negative, incongruent with organizational goals, and that they can be categorized drives the need to measure those norms and develop a normative profile. In effect, a normative profile is a statement of organizational strengths and weaknesses on a behavioral level. Understanding their impact on an organization's ability to achieve its goals, you should direct improvement programs toward changing workgroup norms rather than individual behavior, as is so often the case with organizations' development programs. Once norms change, behavioral change should follow. If a military member's behavior does not support positive organizational norms, the supervisor needs to determine the underlying reasons. The individual's behavior could be a result of unmet needs, a result of discipline problems, or both. In order to be effective operational managers and expeditionary leaders, supervisors must learn to instill positive norms to properly motivate and discipline airmen. Section 22C. Transactional Analysis, TA Introduction I'm okay-you're okay is a euphemism for transactional analysis also called TA. To some, TA is a nonverbal reaction to communication between husband and wife or parents and children. However, TA is much more than that and can be applied to a business, industrial, or military organization. TA is a theory of personality as well as a systemic psychotherapy for personal growth and personal change. As TA evolves, This reaction to communication is finding a wide application in organizations and education. TA principles and techniques is used by managers to more fully understand themselves and their relationships with others, which can lead to them becoming happier, healthier, and more productive. TA can be defined by several principles, such as ego states, transactions, life positions, strokes, and time structuring. These principles can be utilized to form techniques to improve individual productivity that, in turn, can lead to increased organizational effectiveness. Ego states One area of TA is the study of individual ego states. We all know without being told that we are different. The underlying theory of TA is the highlighting of those differences. According to Dr. Eric Byrne in his book, Games People Play, TA analysis states that a human personality is composed of ego states commonly referred to as parent, adult, and child, PAC. Each ego state is relatively separate from the others and each has its own set of feelings, beliefs, and behavior patterns. Generally, people act in one ego state at a time. In some cases, people may act in two ego states at the same time. The states are produced by the playback of recorded data of past events involving real people, real times, real places, and real feelings. BEAM 23-28 Another expert on this subject, Dr. Thomas Harris, does an excellent job of writing about these ego states in his book, I'm Okay-You're Okay. He says the parent ego state is a way of thinking, acting, feeling, and believing much the same as our parents and is based upon the brain's recordings of our perceptions of our parents' responses. As such, the parent ego state responds immediately and automatically to childlike behavior. The parent can be a critical parent or an overly nurturing parent. Harris, 40-46 Dr. Arnold Cambly, in his booklet, The ABCs of PAC, An Introduction to Transactional Analysis, refers to the parent as the taught concepts of life. We were taught this behavior from watching authority figures in our early childhood. Harris, 1. Dr. Harris says the child ego contains our basic desires and needs, and the recordings of the feelings and reactions of our childhood oddly enough, this state develops about the same time as the parent state. The spontaneous dimensions of the child provide for the joy, motivation, and natural creativity of one's own personality. Adopted elements of the child are expressed in feelings and patterns of response to parental stimuli, responses such as rebellion, procrastination, or compliance. Harris 47-50. Dr. Campbell refers to this ego state As the felt concept of life, these are the feelings we have recorded from childhood. Cambly one dash two. These feelings bring forth our emotions and desires for emotion in others. According to doctor Harris, the third state, the adult ego state, is a way of acting, feeling, and believing that is rather objective. The adult part of our personality develops later than either that of the parent or the child and continues to develop throughout the lifetime of a healthy person and is the analytical part of our personality that processes current and objective information about our environment. The adult also edits our archaic recordings in the parent and child parts of personality Harris fifty fifty nine. doctor Cambly says the adult deals with the realities of the world plus input from the parent and child. The adult deals with the here and now in contrast to the other two ego states which come from the past Cambly. 3. The adult is the learned concept of life. In this case, learned in the adult is different than the taught of the parent. Cambly, 3. Learned refers to a continuous process. The adult is always learning. The taught parent ego state was taught once in the past. The three ego states appear in our behavior at different times. According to Dr. Harris, a healthy individual maintains a balance among the three. However, Some people may be dominated by one of the ego states. This is contamination. Harris, 123-140 According to Dr. Cambly, contamination takes place when the parent or child contaminates the adult. The adult makes the decisions, but these decisions are then distorted due to the past tapes of the parent or child. Dr. Harris and Dr. Cambly agree that such people have been known to create problems for managers who have to work with them. People with child-dominated personalities generally do not engage in much rational problem-solving. They can be hard to reason with in emotionally charged situations because these people have learned through earlier experiences that they can succeed by being loud, boisterous, or emotional. Parent-dominated people also do not engage in much rational problem-solving because they already know what is right and what is wrong. They are overly critical or overly nurturing. Another problem is exclusion. This happens when one ego state excludes the others. In this situation, the excluding ego state pushes out the excluded ego states. Dr. Cambly points out that a healthy person has the ego states separate and discrete. When things go wrong, contamination or exclusion results. Cambly, 45. Life Position Along with ego states, the term life position is associated with TA. Simply stated, life position is how a person feels about oneself and about other people. In the process of growing up, people make some rather basic assumptions about themselves and about others in their environment. The combination of assumptions about oneself and about others is referred to as a life position. Important to state is that the life position has two parts, the feelings of self and feelings towards others. This is different than self-concept or self-esteem, which only deal with self. Life positions tend to be more permanent than ego states. This permanency can create potential problems in an organizational setting where people work together even if their life positions are not complementary. Life positions result from reinforcement received throughout life from expressions of need and responses to express needs. The focus of the book by Dr. Harris, I'm Okay-You're Okay, is on these life positions. The assumptions are described in terms of okayness. Thus, individuals are labeled either okay or not okay, whether they refer to themselves or to someone else. Okay and not okay equate to value and individual worth. Thus, there are four possible life positions. Harris, 66. I'm not okay dash you are not okay equals neither of us has value, negative, negative. I'm not okay dash you are okay equals I don't have value, you have value, negative, positive. I'm okay, dash, you are not okay, equals, I have value, you don't have value, positive, negative. I'm okay, dash, you are okay, equals, we both have value, positive, positive. The fourth life position is ideal because most people with these feelings tend to have a positive outlook on life and are generally successful transactions and strokes. According to Dr. Eric Heem, a situation which results in social intercourse is dubbed a transaction. Beam 29. If two or more people encounter each other in a social interaction, sooner or later, one of them will speak or give some indication of acknowledging the presence of the others. Dr. Heem calls this transactional stimulus. Another person says or does something related to this stimulus, and that action is called the transactional response. Therefore, simple TA is concerned with diagnosing which ego states are used in the transaction, stimulus, and response. Transactions may involve combinations of ego states and match or replay forms of interactions that develop early in life. Simple transactions are those in which both stimulus and response arise from the adult states of the parties concerned. These are parallel or complementary. Also, child-to-parent transactions and vice versa is complementary. Complementary means the responses are both appropriate and expected. Some transactions are not complementary. The responses are not expected or appropriate. For example, an adult-to-adult stimulus followed by a child-to-parent response is not complementary and is called a crossed transaction. These occur when a respondent reacts from an ego state other than the one desired by the initiator. Crossed transactions can cause problems, but they also have a use, as you'll see later. Analyzing the transactions to determine the ego states can help determine the life position. As long as transactions remain complementary, communication continues regardless of the content of the transaction. On the other hand, communication ceases as a result of crossed transactions Dr. Burns' research and experience tell us that cross-transactions are barriers to effective communication and negatively impact the motivation of people, which ultimately results in decreased output. Consider the following example. The supervisor states, Staff Sergeant Jones, could you come to a meeting in my office around 1300 today? Staff Sergeant Jones replies, sure. This is an adult transaction. Communication could continue, and the supervisor could say, Good, I'd like you to brief that idea you submitted to the rest of the staff. I really think it'll work. On the other hand, Staff Sergeant Jones could have said, Oh, come on. I've already got enough work to do around here. I don't want to sit through another boring meeting. In this case, Staff Sergeant Jones is responding emotionally and not from the adult ego state. Therefore, effective communication is blocked. Another type of transaction is called a stroke. A stroke is a special form of recognition that one person gives to another. Strokes can be positive or negative and are common in any organization. According to Dr. Campbell, positive strokes can be verbal, nonverbal, or physical. They're designed to make the person feel good. They're a type of reward. They can be conditional, which means they're based on a certain condition being met. Telling a worker, Hey, Staff Sergeant Jones, you did a great job putting together the training report, is an example of a positive conditional stroke. Positive conditional strokes modify behavior in that they try to get the person to continue the behavior. Positive strokes can also be unconditional. An unconditional stroke is not based on any condition and is given just for being, not for doing. Smiling at someone and telling them you're glad to have them as part of the team is a positive unconditional stroke. Positive unconditional strokes are designed to make the person feel good about themselves. Positive unconditional strokes improve self-esteem, which can help lead to a better life position. Dr. Campbell also reviews the negative strokes people use. Negative strokes are designed to make the person feel bad. They're a type of punishment or rebuke. Just like positive strokes, negative strokes can be conditional or unconditional. A negative conditional stroke is used to modify behavior in that that is used to get the person to stop the behavior. Issuing a reprimand or Article 15 is an example. The act, condition, resulted in the negative conditional stroke. A negative unconditional stroke is aimed at the person just like the positive unconditional stroke and is an attack against the person and not any specific behavior. Slamming a person, putting them down, or calling them names are all examples of negative unconditional strokes. In professional relationships, there is never a need to use negative unconditional strokes. Dr. Harris identifies different stroking with the different life positions. He has found that people of unhealthy life positions tend to overuse certain types of strokes. Harris, 67-77. For example, an I'm okay-you're not okay person may overuse negative strokes. The reason is obvious. This person thinks they're so much better than everyone else, and they may operate from the critical parent ego state. On the other hand, an I'm not okay dash you're okay person may overuse positive strokes. This person sees others as so much better than they are. A problem with overusing positive strokes is that the strokes become plastic or meaningless. If the supervisor is always using them, his or her praise becomes meaningless. Time structuring. Another aspect of TA deals with time structuring. According to Dr. Cambly, if a person lives to be 75 years old, assuming he or she sleeps 8 hours out of every 24, he or she has approximately 50 waking years to spend in some type of time structuring. Cambly, 9. Dr. Heem states there are several options for a person. These are Withdrawal, Rituals, Activities, Pastimes, Games, and Intimacy, BEAM 18-19. A summary of each of these, as taken from Dr. Campbell's booklet, is below. Withdrawal. This involves no risk and has minimal social rewards because there's minimal contact. A person does not have to be alone to be in withdrawal. They can be lost in the crowd. Withdrawal is not always bad. We all need to get away and relax or be alone at times. However, if this is the primary way a person structures their time, it becomes a problem. This can be dangerous if a person uses it all the time. Some people can be withdrawn prior to suicide. Rituals. Rituals are highly structured and predictable ways to structure time. This can be as simple as walking down the hall and saying, Hi Jim, how are you today? Jim then replies, Hi. I'm fine. This is done out of habit and is predictable. You may not really care how Jim is, and Jim may not actually be fine. Rituals are okay at times, but if this is all a person does, this is not productive in the work center. Rituals are just small talk about things of little value. So a person who spends most of their time in rituals does not contribute as much to the work center. Rituals are slightly riskier than withdrawal because there's some interaction. however. The risk is minimal because of the structured and predictable nature of rituals. Activities. These are goal-oriented. Activities are things people do to meet mission requirements or goals. They are production-orientated. This is where the majority of time should be spent in the work center. People with a healthy life position can spend a lot of time in activities, and they expect others to be goal-oriented, activity-centered also. Pastimes. Pastimes are ways to structure time, such as hobbies, for relaxation. Things we do without a specific goal in mind are all pastimes. Pastimes and activities can be confused. You need to look at the intent of the time structuring. For example, someone playing golf for fun is structuring their time doing a pastime. However, if they're a professional golfer and make money at it, they're engaged in activities. The risk is a bit higher for activities and pastimes, than it is for rituals or withdrawal, because there are more chances of interaction and more chances for values and differences of opinion to come into play. There are more meaningful transactions during activities and pastimes. Games. Games are a way to structure time in devious or crooked ways to get strokes, which are normally negative. Games are not productive, and they result in anger, frustration, jealousy, etc., The risks in games are high because of the anger and hurt feelings that result. Those with unhealthy life positions normally play games. Games, like poor communication, often tend to create organizational problems. A basic understanding of the term games is essential to the application of TA in management. In his book, Games People Play, Dr. Byrne refers to a game as a recurring set of transactions, often repetitious, superficially plausible with a concealed motivation. Burn 48. These types of transactions can be of a type called ulterior, meaning there's a hidden or ulterior meaning to the transaction. Basically, games are transactions that are designed to cause an emotional response such as anger or hurt. A game might be as simple as an I'm not okay dash you're okay person speaking from the child ego state trying to get others to be the nurturing parent. Some games get more complex and can even result in death. Given this definition, games become barriers preventing people and organizations from achieving their objectives. Games tend to inhibit full productivity. Using cross-transactions responding always from your adult when the game player is using the child or parent will reduce game playing. For example, assume someone says, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. What moron came up with that? This person is being a critical parent and not presenting any facts to support the point of view. Using your adult, you could reply, what parts of the idea do you find flawed? Or... Can you provide specific data to support your opinion? These replies use the adult to seek facts and to focus the person on the here and now. Intimacy This is the most risky, but also the most rewarding type of time structuring, and is defined as a close relationship with others free of games and exploitation. Intimacy is being open, honest, and sincere, and requires a person at the I'm okay-you're okay life position. Intimacy is not just sexual relationships. A person can have sexual relationships and be in a state of withdrawal or ritual. Intimacy is a close personal relationship, and that's why the risk and reward are high. The work environment. We can now relate the concepts of TA to the environmental process. How do basic concepts of TA apply in business, industrial, or military environments? The most basic application of TA principles is to managerial styles. TA is a powerful tool that can help managers understand the interactive nature of human problems in a work environment so that they can deal with these problems more effectively. Does the supervisory relationship indicate the need for a participative or an authoritarian management style? Or does the need indicate another point along the continuum? For an authoritarian style or theory X management to work effectively, The manager has to operate as a parent while workers operate in the child state. Supervisors have absolute authority while workers are very dependent on direction from above. Thus, the boss is okay, but the workers are not okay. In this situation, the manager accepts final responsibility for failure. Being dependent, much like a child, the worker in this situation is protected from making a wrong decision because the boss takes full responsibility for all actions. There is another view. According to Maslow, Harrisburg, and other motivation theorists, the authoritarian style of management frustrates achievement of the higher-level needs of human personality. Therefore, a worker in this situation may find it satisfactory but may never experience a state of self-fulfillment and growth. A common belief among casual observers is that the condition just described is common in many organizations. The participative, or theory Y management style, involves adult-adult transactions. The two-way flow of communication exists, and the worker feels more comfortable in providing his or her input. Subordinates feel a sense of responsibility rather than a feeling of dependency. Because workers influence decisions and share responsibility, they experience a feeling of fulfillment. The corresponding life position is likely, I'm okay-you're okay. A potential exists for cross-transactions in any management setting. In the authoritarian approach, the supervisor may be comfortable in the parent ego state, but the worker may not enjoy the child state. The worker may want to operate in the adult state, and rightfully so. In this situation, parent-to-adult communication is disturbed, and an unsettled situation occurs. The worker becomes frustrated, leading to unproductive behavior and performance, not a healthy situation for any organization. Thus, a manager with an understanding of TA and with knowledge of worker ego states based on observation could possibly head off this type of situation. Cross-transactions are also possible while using a participative management style. By its very nature, this style encourages employee ego involvement in the -the on-the-job activities. Individuals identify closely with work units and jobs because they're involved in establishing policies and operating procedures. However, even in this style, instances often occur when policies are established and decisions are rendered with rule or no employee involvement. A simple exercise of management prerogative. Such cases provide a fertile ground for cross-transactions when disgruntled employees confront individual managers. Here, the potential is high for responses from the parent ego state and the opportunity for conflict exists. Therefore, a skilled manager with an understanding of TA and with knowledge of worker ego states based on observation can avoid the conflict by dealing with those situations from a complementary state. TA has taken hold as a supervisory tool. Initially, it was used mainly to teach employees who deal with the public how to relate better to their customers. Later, managers experimented with TA as a means of improving communications within the company itself. This experimentation has encouraged and reinforced a team concept. This is a participative management style, whereby management and workers share the responsibility for decision-making. Some management practitioners view this as co-optation. In other words, it gives workers an equitable share of the pie. The prevailing philosophy is that workers take ownership for their behavior in supporting policies and following procedures, which results in allowing more focus on productivity while maintaining a high interpersonal working relationship. In TA terms, both management and workers function in the adult ego state. The resulting impact of this condition on organizations is that the organization is okay. Overall, it can be stated, together we are okay the organization is okay equals we all have value summarizing life positions and their relationship to management styles one might view it in terms of a management matrix similar to that depicted in table 1.1 1. 1. conclusion generally what has been the response to ta many executives after having been exposed to ta training swear by it others have not responded as well and consider it just another buzzword TA is very difficult to evaluate objectively. Most supervisors are more than willing to prescribe TA training for line employees, but do not show much enthusiasm for applying TA concepts to themselves. Even though there's skepticism, some supervisors have learned that TA is profitable in terms of increasing organizational effectiveness. It's presented here as a tool to add to your management toolbox. The application of TA tracks well with the management theories of Likert, McGregor, and Argyris because use of TA provides opportunities for individuals to grow and mature. Even though some workers prefer to function in the child state and appear to avoid responsibility, most desire to be treated as adults and to be given more responsibility. Using TA not only provides an opportunity for managers to know their people, but it also helps them to get in touch with themselves. When all parties involved are aware of each other's needs, communication improves. This condition is essential to organizational effectiveness. The effective supervisor focuses on workers' behavior and the modification of that behavior as a means for improving the organizational climate, thereby ultimately increasing overall productivity. Section 22d. Performance Counseling Performance Counseling Performance counseling is a systemic, two-way discussion between supervisor and subordinate concerning duty performance as compared to established standards, with the intention of informing the subordinate of his or her past duty performance and cooperatively developing a plan to sustain or improve performance. The Lost Art of Feedback The ability and willingness to communicate effectively is the key to supervisory success, Although communication effectiveness is based on the ability to make and maintain effective contact, regardless of the situation, specific areas of communication require some additional thought and planning. One of the most important tools for maintaining control and developing people is the proper use feedback, although feedback has been categorized as positive and negative. Another way to view this is to classify it into supportive feedback, which reinforces an ongoing behavior and corrective feedback, which indicates that a change in behavior is appropriate. In this sense, all feedback is positive. The purpose of all feedback should be to assist an individual in maintaining or enhancing his or her present level of effectiveness or appropriateness. Some feedback, by definition, is better than no feedback. There are, however, ways to do it well and ways to do it superbly. Here are some guidelines that can help to sharpen the process. The most important function of feedback is to help the individual who is receiving the feedback to keep in touch with what is going on in the environment. Supportive feedback Supportive feedback is used to reinforce behavior that is effective and desirable. An axiom of effective supervision is, catch them doing something right and let them know it. Blanchard and Johnson, 1982 One of the most damaging and erroneous assumptions that many supervisors make is that good performance and appropriate behavior are to be expected from the employee and that the only time feedback is needed is when the employee does something wrong. Therefore, these supervisors never give supportive feedback. If a supervisor was determined to give only one kind of feedback, he or she would be ahead to choose supportive feedback and let corrective feedback go. In other words, if a supervisor stresses errors only, The end result would be, at most, an attempt by employees to do standard, error-free work. This accomplishment would not be bad, but there is a better way. If a supervisor concentrated on what the employees were doing well, then superior work is what the employees would become aware of. They would begin to view their work in terms of performing as well and as creatively as possible. What's reinforced has a tendency to become stronger. What's not reinforced has a tendency to fade away. If excellence is actively reinforced and errors are simply mentioned, employees will focus on excellence and tend to reduce errors. The following example of the two types of feedback illustrates the difference. Focus on errors. The last three pieces in that batch contained wrong figures. We cannot have that kind of sloppy work in this department. Focus on good work. This batch looks good except for the last three pieces, which contain wrong figures. You probably used the wrong formula. Take them back and check them out just the way you did the first group. Fortunately, however, no one has to make a choice between using only supportive or only corrective feedback. Both are essential and valuable and it's important to understand how each works so that the maximum gain can be received from the process. Corrective feedback. Corrective feedback is used to alter a behavior that is ineffective or inappropriate and is as essential to the growth process as supportive feedback. A corrective feedback session, although never hurtful if done properly, is not a particularly pleasant experience. Under the best of circumstances, the subordinate will probably feel a little defensive or embarrassed. In giving corrective feedback, the manager should have an option ready to present. When the employee is made aware of the inappropriate behavior, having an immediate alternative can be effective and powerful in shaping behavior by presenting the alternative immediately after the corrective feedback, the manager is helping the subordinate to come out of a personally uncomfortable situation in the shortest possible time. This protects the dignity of the subordinate. The manager would also be establishing himself or herself as a supporter of good work and good workers, which would go a long way in developing strong, productive, supportive working relationships. Also very important, the manager would be presenting an alternative that the employee might never have considered or that was considered and rejected. This provides for immediate learning. More important, however, is the fact that the manager would make the employee aware that an alternative was available at the time the employee chose to act otherwise. This awareness can facilitate the employee in taking responsibility for his or her own choices. That is, the employee would realize, that's right, I could have done it that way. The following example shows how an alternative can be effectively added to the feedback. When you snapped at Ann in front of the group, she appeared to be very embarrassed and angry. When you must remind an employee to be on time, it's less embarrassing for everyone to discuss it with the employee privately after the meeting. Guidelines for effective feedback. The following guidelines are helpful for managers who are trying to improve their feedback skills and may also be used as a review prior to giving feedback. Deal in specifics. Being specific is the most important rule in giving feedback, whether supportive or corrective. Unless the feedback is specific, very little learning or reinforcement is possible. The following examples illustrate the difference in general and specific statements. General. I'm glad to see that your work is improving. Specific. I'm pleased that you met every deadline in the last three weeks. General you're a very supportive person. Specific, I appreciate you taking the time to explain the contract to our new employee. General, you're falling down on the job again. Specific, last month, most of the cost reports were completely accurate, but last week, your profit cost figures were wrong. The last set is, of course, an example of corrective feedback. General statements and corrective feedback frequently result in hostile or defensive confrontations, whereas specific statements set the stage for problem-solving interaction. Carrying the last illustration one step farther, the manager could add an alternative. Start checking the typed report against the computer printouts. Some of the errors may be typos, not miscalculations. If the employee is to learn from feedback and respond to it, then he or she must see it in terms of observable effects. That is, the employee must be able to see clearly how his or her behavior had a direct impact on the group's performance, morale, etc. When the employee sees the point of the feedback objectively, the issue will be depersonalized and the employee will be more willing to continue with appropriate behaviors or to modify inappropriate behaviors. Although the manager's personal approval, I'm glad to see dot dot, dot or disapproval, I'm disappointed that dot dot, dot can give emphasis to feedback. It must be supported by specific data in order to affect a change in behavior. Focus on actions, not attitudes. Just as feedback must be specific and observable to be effective, it must be non-threatening to be acceptable. Although subordinates, like supervisors, are always accountable for their behavior, they are never accountable for their attitudes or feelings. Attitudes and feelings cannot be measured nor can a manager determine if or when an employee's feelings have changed. For feedback to be acceptable, it must respect the dignity of the person receiving the feedback. No one can attack attitudes without dealing in generalities, and frequently attacks on attitudes result in defensive reactions. The following example illustrates the difference in giving feedback on behavior and giving feedback on attitudes. Feedback on Attitude You've been acting hostile toward Jim. Feedback on behavior. You threw the papers down on Jim's desk and used profanity. An attitude that managers often try to measure is loyalty. Certain actions that seem to indicate loyalty or disloyalty can be observed, but loyalty is a result, not an action, and cannot be demanded. It must be earned. Whereas people have total control over their own behavior, they often exercise little control over their feelings and attitudes. They feel what they feel. If a manager keeps this in mind and focuses more energy on things that can be influenced, i.e., employee behavior, changes are more likely to occur. The more that corrective feedback is cast in specific behavioral terms, the more it supports problem-solving and the easier it is to control. The more that corrective feedback is cast in attitudinal terms, the more it will be perceived as a personal attack and the more difficult it will be to deal with. The more that supportive feedback is cast in terms of specific behaviors, the higher the probability that those behaviors will be repeated and eventually become part of the person's natural way of doing things. Determine the appropriate time and place. Feedback of either type works best if it's given as soon as feasible after the behavior occurs. Waiting decreases the impact that the feedback will have on the behavior. The passage of time may make the behavior seem less important to the manager. Other important events begin to drain the energy of the manager, and some of the details of the behaviors might be forgotten. On the other hand, dwelling on it for a long period could blow it out of proportion. From the subordinate's viewpoint, the longer the wait for the feedback, the less important it must be. The following example illustrates this point. Tardy feedback. You fell below your quota several times last month. Immediate feedback. There are only 10 products here. Your quota for today was 14. Enough time should be allotted to deal with the issues in their entirety. A manager can undercut feedback effectiveness by looking at the clock and speeding up the input so that an appointment can be met. Answering the telephone or allowing visitors to interrupt the conversation can have the same effect. The manager can also cause unnecessary stress by telling an employee at 10 o'clock in the morning, I want to see you at 3 this afternoon. A more appropriate procedure would be to say, would you please come to my office now, or when you reach a stopping point, drop by my office, I have something good to tell you. In addition to an appropriate time, the setting is also important. The old proverb, praise in public, censure in private, is partially correct. Almost without exception, corrective feedback is more appropriately given in private. In the case of supportive feedback, however, discretion is needed. In many instances, praise in public is appropriate and will be appreciated by the subordinate. In other instances, privacy is needed to keep the positive effect from being short-circuited. For example, some people make a virtue out of humility. Any feedback that reinforces their sense of worth is embarrassing. Rather than appreciating an audience, this type of employee would find it painful and perhaps resent it. Sometimes a norm arises in a work group that prevents anyone from making a big deal out of good work. This does not mean that the group does not value good work, but supportive feedback in private might prevent the employee from feeling he or she was responsible for breaking the norm. In other instances, public praise can cause jealousy, hostility, or tense working relationships. Therefore, a conscious decision should be made about whether or not to give the supportive feedback publicly. Another important consideration is the actual location selected for giving the feedback. The delivery of the feedback should match its importance. If the feedback concerns an important action, the manager's office would be better than an accidental encounter in the hall. On the other hand, the manager might convey a quick observation by telling someone at the water fountain, Say... That was beautiful artwork on the Madison Report. Choosing the time and place is a matter of mixing a little common sense with an awareness of what is going on. Refrain from inappropriately including other issues. Frequently, when feedback is given, other issues interfere. When supportive feedback is given, any topic that does not relate to the specific feedback point should not be discussed if it would undercut the supportive feedback. For example... The manager could destroy the good just accomplished by adding, and by the way, as long as you're here, I want to ask you to try to keep your files a little neater. While you were away, I couldn't find a thing. When corrective feedback is given, however, the situation is different. The manager will want the feedback to be absorbed as quickly and easily as possible, with the employee's negative feelings lasting no longer than necessary. Therefore, as soon as the feedback has been understood and acknowledged, The manager is free to change the subject. The manager may want to add, I'm glad that you see where the error occurred. Now, as long as you're here, I'd like to ask your opinion about... This type of statement, when used appropriately, lets the subordinate know that he or she is still valued. Obviously, the manager should not contrive a situation just to add this type of statement. But when the situation is naturally there, the manager is free to take advantage of it. In certain situations, it's appropriate to give supportive and corrective feedback simultaneously. Training periods of new employees, performance appraisal sessions, and times when experienced employees are tackling new and challenging tasks are all good examples of times when both types of feedback are appropriate. Nevertheless, some cautions are necessary. Never follow the feedback with the word but. It will negate everything that was said before it. If appropriate to give supportive and corrective feedback within the same sentence, the clauses should be connected with and. This method allows both parts of the sentence to be heard clearly and sets the stage for a positive suggestion. The following examples illustrate the difference. Connected with but. Your first report was accurate, but your others should have measured up to it. Connected with and. Your first report was accurate, and your others should have measured up to it. Connected with but, you were late this morning, but Anderson called to tell you what a great job you did on the Miller account. Connected with and, you were late this morning, and Anderson called to tell you what a great job you did on the Miller account. Alternate the supportive and corrective feedback. Better to mix the supportive feedback with the corrective feedback than to give all of one type and then all of the other when a great deal of feedback must be given. Regardless of which type comes first, The latter will be remembered the most clearly. If a chronic self-doubter is first given supportive feedback and then only corrective feedback, he or she is likely to believe the supportive feedback was given just to soften the blow of the other type. Alternating between the two types will make all the feedback seem more genuine. Where feasible, use the supportive feedback to cushion the corrective feedback. When both types of feedback are appropriate, there's usually no reason to start with the corrective feedback. However, This does not mean that corrective feedback should be quickly sandwiched in between supportive feedback statements. Each type is important, but frequently supportive feedback can be used as an excellent teaching device for areas that need correcting. This is especially true if the employee has done a good job previously and then failed later under similar circumstances. For example, the manager might say, The way you helped Fred to learn the codes when he was transferred to this department would be appropriate in training the new employees. Principles of Feedback Two major principles govern the use of feedback. The first principle, which relates to how feedback is conducted, can be paraphrased, I can't tell you how you are and you can't tell me what I see. In other words, the person giving the feedback is responsible to relate the situation as he or she observes it, and the person receiving the feedback is responsible for relating what he or she meant, felt, or thought. The second principle is that feedback supports growth. Let's define what is meant by, I can't tell you how you are, and you can't tell me what I see. Receiving Feedback You can't tell me how I am From the recipient's viewpoint, the first principle is, you can't tell me how I am, and I can't tell you what you see. Although most people realize that giving feedback correctly requires skill and awareness, they're less aware of the importance of knowing how to receive feedback. When receiving feedback, many people tend to argue about, disown, or attempt to justify the information. Statements like, I didn't say that, that's not what I meant, and you don't understand what I was trying to do, are attempts to convince the person giving the feedback that he or she didn't see or observe what he or she claims. However, the recipient needs to understand that the observer, whether manager, peer, or subordinate, is relating what he or she experienced as a result of the recipient's behavior. There is nothing wrong with the giver and receiver having different viewpoints. The purpose of feedback is to give a new view or to increase awareness. If an argument ensues and the observer backs down, the recipient is the loser. Giving feedback. You can't tell me what I see. The object of giving feedback is not to judge the other person but to report what was seen and heard and what the effects of the behavior were. Personal approval or disapproval, even if important, is secondary. Feedback should be given directly to the person for whom it's intended. When others are present, the manager sometimes addresses them almost to the exclusive of the intended recipient, who sits quietly and gathers information by eavesdropping. Good contact with the recipient is an essential element in giving feedback never apologize for giving corrective feedback. Corrective or otherwise, feedback is a gift. Apologies will discount the importance and lessen the impact. Nevertheless, corrective feedback must be given in a way that does not jeopardize the recipient's dignity and sense of self-worth. To offer an interpretation of the behavior or a hunch about what the behavior might indicate is sometimes more helpful. Crucially important is to offer the interpretation as a suggestion and never as a judgment or clinical evaluation of the person. Only the recipient is capable of putting it into meaningful context. For example, the manager might say, When Pete showed you the error you made, you told him it was none of his concern. I wonder if you were mad at Pete for some other reason. This statement shows the recipient the behavior and allows him or her to consider a possible cause for that behavior. The appropriate response, as a rule of thumb, is to say thank you when either type of feedback is received. Also appropriate, of course, is to ask for clarity or more detail on an issue. The purpose of feedback is to help the recipient. Feedback can be thought of as food which is very nourishing. When people are hungry, food is what they need. But when they're full, food is the last thing they want or need. The same applies to ingesting feedback. When people have had enough, they should call a halt. Attempting to absorb all feedback that might be available or that various people would like to give is like forcing food into a full stomach just because someone says, please, have some more. The recipient is responsible for demanding specificity in feedback. No feedback should be accepted as legitimate if it cannot be clearly demonstrated by an observable behavior. For example, if someone says, you're very arrogant. An appropriate response would be, What specifically have I said or done to cause you to think that? If that response is countered with, I don't know, I just experience you that way, then the accusation should be immediately forgotten. People cannot afford to change just to meet everyone's personal likes or expectations. In fact, what is impossible is to change to meet everyone's expectations and the situation becomes compounded as more and more people give their feedback. A single act can generate disparate feedback from different people who observe the behavior. For example, a loud exclamation can be viewed as appropriately angry by one person, overly harsh by another, and merely uncouth by a third. Each person will see it from his or her unique perspective. Therefore, feedback requires action from both the giver and the receiver. Only the giver can tell what he or she observed or experienced and only the recipient can use the information in deciding whether or not to change the behavior. For feedback to be effective, the receiver must hear what the giver is saying, weigh it, and then determine whether or not the information is relevant. The following example illustrates how this can be done. Department Manager Waste in your unit is up by 4%. Are you having problems with your employees? Supervisor I was not aware of the waste increase. No, I'm not having trouble with my employees. I suppose I've been focusing on the quality so much that I lost sight of the waste figures. Thanks for bringing this to my attention. Feedback supports growth. The second major principle, feedback supports growth, is important because we cannot always see ourselves as others see us. Although an individual may be the world's foremost authority on himself or herself, there are still parts of the individual that are more obvious to other people. Although people may be more aware of their own needs and capabilities and more concerned about their own welfare than other people are, they're able to stretch themselves and grow if they pay attention to feedback from others. Although feedback may be extremely uncomfortable at the time, the individual can look back later and realize the feedback was the spark that inspired the change that turned his or her career or personal life in a different direction. If the feedback is not rejected or avoided, Recipients can discover and develop ways to work that they did not think were available. Feedback Strategies The strategies suggested here are not step-by-step procedures to be blindly followed. Their purpose is to help in planning and organizing an approach to deal with an issue. They offer a logical and effective sequence of events for the feedback session. The person planning the session must decide on the desired future objective. The future, however, could be five minutes after the session or two years later. During the feedback session, attention must be focused on what is happening in terms of the outcome. That is, the focus must be on obtaining the goal, not on sticking to the strategy. This focus allows the giver to change tactics or even modify the original strategy if conditions change or unforeseen events occur. After the strategy is selected, the following three rules should be kept in mind. Be clear about what you want in terms of specific, identifiable outcomes for yourself, your subordinate, and the organization. Plan what you intend to say and how you intend to conduct the meeting, according to the particular strategy you will use. Have the strategy in mind as you engage the individual, but keep it in the background. Supportive Feedback Strategy The following steps are suggested as a strategy for supportive feedback. Acknowledge the specific action to be reinforced. Immediately let the subordinate know that you're pleased about something he or she did. Be specific and describe the event in behavioral terms. You finish the project, action, on time, result. Explain the effects of the accomplishment and state your appreciation. For the behavior to be reinforced, the person must be able to see the effects of that behavior in specific, observable ways. Your appreciation is important, but as an additional reinforcing element. The main reinforcement is the effect. It was a major factor in securing the contract effect, and I'm pleased with your outstanding work appreciation. Help the subordinate to take full responsibility for the success. If the employee acknowledges the feedback, this step is accomplished. If the employee seems overly modest, more work is needed. Unless he or she can, to some degree, internalize the success and receive satisfaction from it, very little growth will occur. One approach would be to ask how the success was accomplished or if any problems were encountered and how they were overcome. In talking about what happened, the employee is likely to realize how much he or she was really responsible for. What's important is for both you and the employee to hear how the success was accomplished. Ask if the subordinate wants to talk about anything else. While the employee is feeling positive and knows that you're appreciative and receptive, he or she may be willing to open up about other issues. The positive energy created by this meeting can be directed toward other work-related issues, so take advantage of the opportunity. Thank the subordinate for the good performance. The final step, again thanking the subordinate for the accomplishment, assures that your appreciation will be uppermost in his or her mind as he or she leaves and returns to the work setting. Corrective Feedback Strategy The following steps are suggested as a strategy for corrective feedback. Immediately describe the event in behavioral terms and explain the effect. Clearly relate in specific, observable, and behavioral terms the nature of the failure or behavior and the effect of the failure or behavior on the work group or organization. If you can appropriately say something to reduce the employee's embarrassment, the employee is more likely to accept the feedback non-defensively. Ask what happened. Before assuming that the subordinate is at fault, ask what happened. In many instances, the subordinate is not at fault or is only partially responsible. At worst, the employee is given an opportunity to explain before you proceed. At best, you may receive information that would prevent you from censuring the employee. Help the subordinate to take full responsibility for the actions. The more time spent in Step 2, finding out what happened, the easier Step 3 will be. The subordinate needs to learn from the experience in order to reduce the probability of a reoccurrence. Unless this step is handled effectively, the subordinate will see himself or herself as a victim rather than as someone who made a mistake and is willing to correct it. Develop a plan to deal with the issues. Once the subordinate has accepted responsibility, the next step is to help rectify the situation. Now that the employee is willing to be accountable for errors, you can collaboratively devise a plan that will help eliminate them. That is, both of you must agree to take action. If you each want the same thing, such as better performance from the subordinate, then both of you are obligated to do something about it. This is also an excellent opportunity to build on the subordinate's strengths, i.e., I'd like for you to show the same fine attention to safety regulations that you show to job specifications. State your confidence in the subordinate's ability. Once the issue is resolved, end the session by stating your confidence in the ability of the employee to handle the situation. The object is to allow the subordinate to re-enter the work setting feeling as optimistic about his or herself as the situation permits. The subordinate must also understand that you will follow up and give additional feedback when the situation warrants. Conclusion Remember, the concept of power in the workforce usually has a negative connotation, It brings to mind such associations as coercion, manipulation, and even corruption. This does not have to be the case. Power has many positive aspects, and everyone can learn to explore and harness different sources of the individual power they have in the workplace. Develop your own sources of power, and employees will be less dependent on others for the leadership they need. Thus, if you want to do more good for yourself and more good for the people around you, It's important to learn how to tap into your own points of power.